Hello and welcome. You're listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show podcast. Join me as we go delving through the archives to find out about people, places and events that happened in the past. These were stories that were big news in their day, but are largely forgotten now. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. Today's tale takes us back to 1954, and I'll tell you what else happened that year. On the 25th of January, there was the first broadcast of Dylan Thomas's radio play Under Milkwood, two months after its author's death, with Richard Burton as first voice. It was on the BBC third programme. The 6th of May, Roger Bannister became the first person to break the four-minute mile at the Ifley Road track of the University of Oxford. And then on the 29th of May, Diane Leather becomes the first woman to break the five-minute mile at the Alexander Sports Ground in Birmingham. Fourteen years of rationing during and following World War II comes to an end when meat officially comes off ration on the 4th of July. The 5th of August, Julian Slade's musical Salad Days opens in London, following a premiere at the Bristol Old Vic. It becomes the longest-running musical in British theatre history until 1960. On the 18th of September, the last night of the proms, for the first time, features the almost invariable coupling of Sir Henry Wood's 1905 Fantasia on British sea songs, Sir Edward Elgar's 1902 setting of Land of Hope and Glory, Sir Hubert Parry's 1916 setting of William Blake's Jerusalem, and Royal Britannia. And lastly, on the 30th of November, Winston Churchill becomes the first, and to the present day, only UK Prime Minister to celebrate his 80th birthday whilst in office. But our tale today occurred on the 1st of September, when Maureen O'Connor was found in a house in Loxton, Somerset, with the body of a German nurse. Word of the Week And this week, I give you... Bibble, which is to drink often to eat and or drink noisily. So if someone were to shout, quit your bibble, 
you'd probably die of laughter and then continue eating as if a pack of wolves were dining. Slurping is all the rage in Japan, by the way, so bibbling is not always a bad thing. Noreen O'Connor, aged 46 and a former nurse, was charged with murdering Miss Frederica Alwine Maria Buis, known as Marie, aged 77, whose body was found in a bedroom at Gardine, a cottage shared by the two women at Loxton, Somerset. Both were at one time employed by the late Mr Frank Tarks, former director of the Bank of England. In 1899, Maria had come from Germany to work for Emmy Maria Franziska, the wife of Mr. Frank Tarks. But when the Second World War began, Marie was not permitted to work in England and was interned for the duration of the hostilities. Noreen O'Connor, a state-registered nurse, was employed in her place to care for Mrs. Tarks. Emmy passed away in 1943 but by this time Frank Tarks had been left confined to a wheelchair in a hunting accident and she stayed to help him. So when Marie returned to Loxton after the war, O'Connor was acting as the nurse, housekeeper, secretary and companion to the banker and had immersed herself in village life, helping to raise money to build an extension to the school and the village hall. In 1945, Tarks bought Gardine an eight-roomed cottage in Criston Road, Loxton, and gifted it to O'Connor, along with a £20,000 trust fund, shares and cars. He passed away in 1952, and O'Connor moved in, asking the increasingly frail Marie to join her. By that time, Marie had suffered two strokes and had broken her leg and been confined to her bedroom while she recovered, with O'Connor caring for her. At around 7.20am on September the 1st, 1954, Mr Peter Tarks, Frank Tarks' youngest son, received a telephone call from Miss O'Connor, who said, Come over at once. Something terrible has happened. I cannot speak about it on the phone. Marie is in the power of some evil. When Peter Tarks got the call, he explained to Maureen that it would be difficult for him to get to Loxton as he had an appointment in Wales the next day. He tried to figure out what happened and was told that it could not be spoken about on the telephone, but something terrible had happened and Maria was in the power of some evil. It was then he realised something was very wrong and left his home in Bridport. Meanwhile, Mrs Simmons, the daily help, had arrived at Gardine and saw that the curtains to Marie's bedrooms were still closed. She let herself into the kitchen and began to prepare breakfast for the two women. But before she could go upstairs, O'Connor told her that something terrible had happened, although she refused to say what. The housekeeper assumed that Maria had had another stroke. Peter Tark arrived at Gardine at 10am and found O'Connor lying on a sofa fully dressed. He immediately asked her what happened and her first answer was... But surely you know. O'Connor told him that she had heard noises the previous night, like someone closing drawers in Marie's bedroom. 
She then said to him, Marie had an evil look in her eye. The evil was so strong that I plucked them out. It is not Marie who is dead. It is the evil that is in her. Peter would later describe in court exactly what happened. She said that she went to the bedroom and experienced a feeling of evil which made her hair stand on end. She said that she sat down with Marie and talked about the old days, but while talking she noticed from time to time an evil look in Marie's eyes. She told me that she did her best to stop Marie from looking at her, and that all the time she was praying out loud. After a time, Marie looked in the corner of the room, and this time the evil in her eyes was so strong that Miss O'Connor said that she plucked them out. I said, you have plucked out Marie's eyes, she is now dead? She said, It is not Marie that is dead, it is the evil that was in her, as long as the truth is told, and it must be told, no harm will be done. Word on the street. Today, my friends, we go to Rudhall Green in BS7 Bristol. John Rudhall recast the number one bell of Horfield Church in 1807. He was a descendant of Abraham Rudhall, who established a bell foundry in Gloucester in 1684. The firm cast many bells for West Country churches, and in 1774... It said that the family had produced 3,594 bells up to Lady Day that year. Dr. Norman Carwardine Cooper from Winscombe was called to the house and he asked Miss O'Connor what had happened. She said that there had been a lot of evil influences about and that instead of going out the night before, she had stayed in. She did not think that Marie looked herself, and she went upstairs and stayed with her. She prayed and prayed and said she heard voices. One of the voices said, This is my hate, and she realised that it was Marie's eyes that were evil, and she had to get them out. She went back into the room, and then she does not know what happened until the morning when the evil spirits had departed. O'Connor also said that she had experienced electric shocks from the bedspread and the door of the bedroom. When she was asked if she knew what she had done, she replied that she had got rid of something evil, but did not feel she had done something awful. Dr Cooper then went upstairs and found the body of Marie lying on her back, fully dressed, covered with an eiderdown. Her eyeballs had collapsed and her eye sockets and the eyelids were torn. As well as the damage to her eyes, her right nostril was torn. He estimated that Marie had been dead for seven to ten hours and that the cause of death was shock following multiple injuries to the face. Dr Cooper then drove to Axbridge Police Station to report the crime. He then went back and examined O'Connor and he was still there when the police arrived at the house. He hadn't noticed any marks on her except for some small brown marks on her arm which he didn't think were important. The police went to the house, and after inspecting the body, Detective Inspector Leslie Long from Western Supermare told O'Connor that he had seen the body of Maria and said, I'm going to detain you in connection with her death. O'Connor replied, I do not wish to say anything until I have seen my solicitor. He then took O'Connor to Western Supermare Police Station and charged her with the murder of Marie Bowles. 
The following morning, O'Connor appeared at a special court at Axbridge Magistrates and was remanded in custody at Exeter. O'Connor appeared in Axbridge Magistrates Court on Friday the 1st of October and it lasted two and a half hours and six witnesses were called. The public benches were crowded when O'Connor appeared in the dock accompanied by a nursing sister and wardress from Exeter Prison where she had been in custody. She smiled and spoke to her counsel, Mr L. Herrick Collins, as well as her solicitor, Mr. R. L. Gosling. When the case was being outlined, she sat quietly with her hands on her lap, listening intently to the proceedings. One of the witnesses, Police Sergeant C. Woodruff, said that he had searched the bedroom, found a tooth, some hair and a broken comb. When he searched the bathroom, he found a bra, underslip and striped dress, which were all wet at the top. He also found a blood-stained towel. And all these items, as well as scrapings from under O'Connor's nails, were taken to the Forensic Science Laboratory. In reply to Mr Norman Skelhorn, QC, defending, Dr Cooper said that he had always found Miss O'Connor very kindly, very sympathetic and very efficient. And she had been a most devoted nurse to Miss Bulls. Dr A.T.F. Rowley, consultant anthologist, reported that he had found loose hair clutched in the right hand of the deceased and that one hand was swollen and covered in blood. The eyes had been ruptured and, in his opinion, death was due to shock following violent injuries to the face and eyes. He stated that it was possible that the tooth found on the floor was loose in its socket and was removed after death. Dr Thomas Christie, Principal Medical Officer at Holloway Prison in London, said that in his opinion, O'Connor was suffering from some disease of the mind. I would classify it as acute mania. He said. He went on to say that he formed the impression that as she approached the top of the stairs, she felt there was something evil up there that she knew would harm Marie. She did what she did to protect Marie. In my opinion, this delusional trend set up a defect of reason, which was so severe that she was incapable of knowing that what she was doing was wrong. Inspector Long stated that after O'Connor was detained at Western Supermare, she was quiet until the evening, when she began repeating religious expressions, started moving furniture about and knelt down to pray. She became very violent and a doctor was called and she was removed to the cells where she shouted out prayers and religious phrases for several hours until about 10 o'clock p.m. when she became exhausted. The next day, she showed more signs of mental aberration during the journey to Exeter Prison. At the hearing, Noreen's solicitor suggested that Marie could have fallen out of bed and died of a stroke and that her eyes were removed by the nurse post-mortem, but magistrates decided they had enough evidence to go to trial. O'Connor was sent for trial at the Somerset Assizes in Wells on October the 15th, pleading not guilty. She was dressed in the same clothes as the previous hearings at Axbridge Court, 
a grey, loose-fitting coat over a grey frock with a turquoise beret. The court heard that O'Connor had been kept under close observation by Dr Thomas Christie, who once again told them that, in his opinion, O'Connor was suffering from acute mania, a recognised disease of the mind. Saying again that this condition meant that she would be incapable of knowing that she was doing wrong. The next witness, Dr Desmond Curran, psychiatrist at St George's Hospital in London, had two long interviews with O'Connor and agreed with Dr Christie that it was very dubious whether she knew what she was doing. The whole hearing lasted only a little over two hours and the jury reached their decision, their verdict of guilty but insane. On Monday the 18th of October 1954, Mr Justice Byrne declared that O'Connor should be kept in custody as a Broadmoor patient until Her Majesty's pleasure was known. After her release, she spent the rest of her life in St Andrew's Hospital in Northampton and died in 1983. Ted Bundy murdered my dad's friend in 1974 while on his reign of terror in Utah. At least, Bundy admitted to killing her just before his execution, but police were never able to locate her body. That's the topic of just one episode on Straight Up Enigmas, a podcast to explore the unexplained, spine-tingling supernatural stories historical mysteries, and true crime cases are all things to expect when you tune in to our show. We discuss the impossible murder of Julia Wallace, share terrifying true stories from our listeners about sleep paralysis, and explore Cleopatra's lost tomb. I'm Jaden McKell, and I'm the host of Straight Up Enigmas, our bite-sized bi-weekly episodes focus on the world's strangest mysteries. Sacred and sonic geometry, the mistress of Murder Farm, Turkmenistan's door to hell, the curse of the horror film The Omen, and much more. Listen and subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find podcasts. In the news today, boffins in Bristol have discovered that a mobster who's buried in cement is a hardened criminal. Back in the day facts. Let's begin with the 8th of July 1947, where reports are broadcast that a UFO crash-landed in Roswell, New Mexico, in what became known as the Roswell UFO Incident. The 9th of July 1790, the Swedish Navy captures one-third of the Russian Baltic fleet. On the 10th of July 1040, Lady Godiva rides naked on horseback through Coventry, according to legend, to force her husband, the Earl of Mercia, to lower taxes. 
On the 11th of July 1969, David Bowie releases the single Space Oddity, nine days before Apollo 11 lands on the moon. On the 12th of July 1776, Captain James Cook leaves Plymouth, England on HMS Resolution, beginning his third and final trip to the Pacific. The 13th of July 1923 sees the Hollywood sign officially dedicated in the hills above Hollywood, Los Angeles. It originally read Hollywoodland, but the four last letters were dropped after renovations in 1949. And lastly, on the 14th of July 1789, the French Revolution begins with the storming of the Bastille prison in Paris, and it's now celebrated as France's National Day, Bastille Day. Well, I'm afraid that's it from me, but don't worry, I'll be here same time, same place next week. I'd like to take a minute to thank those that really brought today's story to life. And this week's stars of the show are our very own Steve Shepard, as well as Sam Roberts, Joe Wilson, David Brimley Hale and Molly Jeffries from St. Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol. Thank you, one and all. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>